You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. Everyone is facing these huge, life-changing moments. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. I think it really is important for folks to reach out to people so they can know that they're not alone. We don't know how long all this is going to go on for. And from an emotional standpoint, psychologically, that's a really difficult, difficult thing to grapple with. This is KCBS In-Depth. The ferocious 2020 wildfire season continues, bringing with it another week of devastation and harrowing evacuations. This fire is a monster, and it caught up with them. I'm Keith Manconi. This is KCBS In-Depth, and today on the program, as wildfires throughout the state advance with unprecedented speed, we consider what it's taken to keep those in the path of the flames safe. These people who fly these helicopters and fight these fires, those are essential people. Starting off, KCBS's own Kathy Novak was nearby for one of the major evacuation efforts, and uh, she's going to join me in hosting this program to tell us a little bit more about it. Welcome to the program, Kathy Novak. Thanks for having me, Keith. So there are now quite a few blazes that have exploded onto the landscape this week. Uh, we're now tracking the North Complex, the August Complex, the Dolan Fire, but we're going to focus first on the Creek Fire that sparked in the Sierra Nevada, burning up tens of thousands of acres in the Sierra National Forest. Uh, Kathy, like many people, you ended up crossing paths with that disaster purely by happenstance. Uh, you were in Fresno to cover a completely unrelated story. Tell us a little bit about how that all unfolded. Well, that's right. I was in Fresno because I was traveling to the Central Valley to report on the pandemic there. You know, it has been highlighted as a region that's a hot spot for COVID-19. So I went down to talk to some people and see what the situation was. And when I was out in the town of San Joaquin on Saturday, I got a text actually from our colleague, Holly Kwan, saying, hey, are you near the, near the fire? I went, the fire? Oh, wow. And, you know, it just kind of illustrates even for me, it came out of nowhere. It took people by surprise that it happened and then became so huge. Um, so by kind of overnight that same day, we were starting to hear that people were trapped in the Mammoth Pool Reservoir area in the Sierra National Forest. And of course, this is all happening over Labor Day weekend. You know, people have been cooped up for months because of shelter in place and were taking their annual family camping trips out into the Sierra National Forest and became stuck because of this creek fire. So how they crossed paths with me was quite literal, actually. Uh, they started evacuating people on military choppers, brought those who needed it to hospital, but then those who were okay were brought to a shelter that had been set up at the Fresno Convention Center right near where I was staying on this work trip. Um, so I headed over there to talk to some of the evacuees, among them Jorge Rodriguez. He shared some videos with me, and you could just see the ferocity of this fire. It was surrounding them in this little lake, um, and there was just no way out for many people. He managed to drive out. Um, but others, as I say, had to be choppered out. Uh, so another person who was able to drive out was a woman named Sonia Partillo, who was at Mammoth Pool on Saturday camping with her family. Uh, here's a little of what she had to say. It was scary. My, my stepsons were all panicking. They wanted to leave. It just took off. And we told our parents to leave everything behind. So they were doing that. And I guess a tree fell or something with a fire and then it blocked the the way to get out there and then the cars were flipping over and then right now some of my families are in the hospital because they got burned so we're just here waiting to came to just come in to come and pick them up so they were just out there wow you can really hear the 
note of desperation in her voice. And because it was such a close call, the only way that a lot of these folks trapped in the lake or trapped elsewhere were saved was by air evacuation. And you actually had a chance to speak with one of the helicopter pilots that flew that evacuation rescue mission. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, there were several missions throughout the weekend starting on Saturday, and they went over several days. Um, so We're talking about hundreds of people, ultimately. Hundreds of people. You know, I, th I think by the end of the week, the number was around 400 people and uh, dozens of dogs as well that had to be evacuated first from the Mammoth Pool Reservoir area. And that was really critical because people were just exposed to the elements. They had gotten into the water to shelter in place because that's how close the fire was. And they had, as I say, just been camping. There was another set of people dispersed throughout the Sierra National Forest who had been largely backpacking, hiking, you know, doing the John Muir Trail. And they were told to shelter in place at different locations in the forest. And they ultimately were harder to reach. So on Saturday night, uh, military crew were able to get in. Uh, the National, the Army National Guard flew in uh, a Chinook and Blackhawks uh, to rescue people. And they were able to do that on Saturday night. But then for the next couple of days, the smoke just became too thick. The visibility was too difficult. And it was really harrowing because we had people who were loved ones of those trapped waiting at Fresno Airport for these choppers to land. And they kept returning with no one in them uh, because the missions were unsuccessful because the visibility was so low. So these were really, really dangerous missions for the Army National Guard. And um, one of the pilots was Chief Warrant Officer 5 Kip Godding with the California Army National Guard. 40th Combat Aviation Brigade. So I talked to him about how he pulled off this mission, uh, and here's that conversation. Chief Godding, thank you so much for joining us. I know your time is really precious right now. And I mean, this has been days for you, and I'd like to actually start at the beginning by just asking if I could to tell me a little bit about yourself. What's your background in the military? Um, like I said, I've been in the military 35 years and been in an aviator for the last 25. Active duty, flight school, and then I was in the Hawaii National Guard, and then now I'm in the California National Guard, but I'm a full-timer. I come and do this every Monday through Friday, not just one week in a month. So it's a little different when I say National Guard, it's, it's more for me. And some of that active duty, I understand, has been as a helicopter pilot, including in the Middle East. How does that kind of experience compare to the sort of work that you've been doing over the past week or so, or the past few days, rescuing people from the Creek Fire? Well, of course, it's all dangerous. Um, but as I said in a previous interview, the, the overseas deployments, when there's somebody trying to shoot at you, um, you don't necessarily hear it, and it's over very quickly. Uh, whereas the fire is, you know, from the second you get to work and you head up the hill to, to get people or to do fire bucket work, that it's dangerous from beginning to end the whole time. So it is more uh, strenuous. It's definitely more taxing mentally, physically. And it's it's the hardest flying we do is, is definitely working on fires with CAL FIRE here in California. And the first scenes of the dramatic rescues that we were all seeing in the media and actually from some of the video that the evacuees themselves took was from those rescues over at Mammoth Pool, where people were really stranded out in the open. They had gotten into the water even and were just really waiting in an emergency situation to be rescued. Can you tell us about what the situation was there and the conditions you were facing? Yeah, so we had gotten contacted us personally, the crew, I, I'm not sure exactly when it got to the Cal Guard and when it got, but when it got to me, it was about 3.30 in the afternoon on Saturday. 
saying that they had a number of families that were uh, cut off and stranded and they needed immediate evacuation. So we assembled a crew and got to work, got our aircraft ready to fly and uh, started coordinating exact amount of people, uh, exact locations, um, communication frequencies, because it was in the fire area. So Cal Fire was actively having tankers drop retardant. And obviously we can't be in the same airspace. And, uh, so we had to work through all that to make sure they knew we were coming and they were going to accommodate us. And that took a little while, but we got it all straightened out. Um, we grabbed our night vision goggles and headed up to the location they had given us. And we're familiar with the area. We, we fly here, uh, not daily, but many times a week. So we knew where we were going and uh, selected a route, tried to get to the lake. We weren't able to get to it because it was too uh, much smoke and uh, picked an alternate route and were able to be successful to get down into where the people were stranded. And they, it was brutal, just Armageddon, just brutal, brutal fire completely around the lake, small little peninsula that they were on where there is a boat launch, a cement boat launch. And there was probably, I would suspect 20 or 30 cars and a couple motorhomes, some ATVs. Uh, there were a couple boats that were ferrying people from the other side of the lake because some people had uh, consolidated on the opposite side of the lake and they brought them to this one location and um, we found a nice spot to land where they weren't themselves um, in the way. And then Chinook came in, got as many as he could get, and I circled around the lake ensuring that there was no other people in any other locations. I'm, I'm a little smaller, I can land in a little tighter spot. So I wanted to make sure somebody on the other side of the lake wasn't getting forgotten or on the dam. So we, we made sure everybody was in that one spot. He picked up his load and left, and then I got in behind him, picked up my load, and then headed back to Fresno. And you were using night vision. How much more difficult is it to do this kind of rescue at night versus during the day? Sure. Uh, the night vision goggles, in just in general terms, it's more taxing physically, mentally to fly night vision goggles. But in this particular circumstance, seeing through the smoke, it is much better to see through the smoke with the night vision goggles. Uh, the burning embers and the burning trees, with your naked eye, you can't see them past the smoke. But with the night vision goggles, you can see them. So you can see farther, better depth perception. And you can see the, the ridge lines and, and just get a lot more information as far as which route you want to take. So they, they definitely helped. And, and I don't think it would have, been, would have been possible to get to that reservoir without them. In fact, I can definitely, there was no way we were gonna to get to there at all. And I mean, for you, this is personal, right? This is your backyard. Yeah, this is places that we've, I've spent hundreds and hundreds of nights backpacking. I'm a big boy scouter and my son's an Eagle Scout. So all the places that are burning are all the places that we go and enjoy our free time. And that's exactly what the people were doing in the days after that Mammoth Pool Reservoir, where people were stuck out in the hills for several days waiting for a rescue because they'd been out hiking and camping. Um, and the smoke was just too much for you guys to access them on your first tries. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, so for the night we were able to get everyone out of Mammoth Pool Reservoir worked great. And then soon after that, it was just not enough visibility. We tried many times during the day. Um, I'm on the night vision section. So the day guys probably tried at least six, eight times during the day to go up there and weren't successful. And then we tried every night as well. The night vision um, weren't successful. And then after the second night, 
we were able to have a little bit better visibility and we were able to get some of those hikers you're talking about that were a little further away from the actual flame. They weren't surrounded or, you know, in, in danger of being overrun, but they were out, you know, isolated far from where they started. Um, and we picked up a lot of those hikers um, the day after that. So we worked um, till probably about 5.30 in the morning pulling people out. And when you were prevented from landing, you know, for a whole day and then another day, what did that feel like personally to not to fly out there and have to return to base without the evacuees you were hoping to bring back? Yeah, it's tough for every one of us. So I'm on the night shift, but there's day guys here doing it too. And every single one of them, you know, chomping at the bit to head up there and try. So we get our weather brief and see if it is possible. Um, and if there's a chance that we could find an area or could get over the top of it climbing, we, we climbed to uh, 13, 14,000 feet a couple times um, to try to get up and over the smoke and weren't successful in that either. So they're, they're very eager to get out there. Everybody is to do what we can. And when you come back and you say, I didn't get in, you know, everyone's disappointed, of course. And we'll try again in a couple hours. And Chief Gladding, the people that I spoke to, it seemed like they were really taken by surprise in this case that, you know, especially in the case of the people who were out hiking, they were doing the John Muir Trail, they were out backpacking for days, they're experienced outdoors people. You mentioned that you are as well. Do you understand how they got caught off guard in this situation? Do you think that people should have been more prepared or found some other way out? No, no. When you're out there backpacking and hiking, you're out in nature and you don't have any communication. You don't have um, a radio or a cell phone. You don't have any way to know that a fire started yesterday and it's consuming, you know, thousands and tens of thousands of acres heading your way. You can see the smoke if you're heading that direction. But if you're, if you're hiking south and the, and the fire's behind you, you wouldn't really know either. You're down in valleys and up on the top. So those people are really dependent on the rangers and the you know, sheriffs and CHP with loudspeakers on their helicopters to, to get the word out that there's danger and you need to go to whatever location they've determined is a safe location to extract those people. And so it was a very urgent situation, but it, did everyone sort of do the right thing in the way that they gathered and just waited for your help? Yeah, yeah, we had fantastic cooperation. Um, the people were very scared on the first night wide-eyed and, and but, they, but they listened to all our instructions and they got ready and they um, they believed in us that we would be back again and we need to take these people because they're more critical than you. Um, and they were very cooperative. We didn't have any, any trouble with anybody. We even had people on board our aircraft. We were getting ready to launch. I think it was on our second turn and a gentleman came up being carried by another gentleman that was shortness of breath and was very pale and um, said he didn't, he, he was difficulty breathing and lower back pain and he didn't think he could wait any longer. And people on board the aircraft um, didn't have any problem getting off and letting, they could see visibly he, he needed to go before them and they got off and he got on and we brought him down the hill. And I mean, these are largely your fellow Californians. They were out camping with their kids too. Were there any of their stories that particularly stuck with you as you met these people? Yeah, we have a couple of people that work right here in this building that I work in that were out camping that we ended up bringing down the hill that were up enjoying their their weekend and um, and they had the own the same aircraft that they work on uh, came and pick them up. So that was pretty cool. What was that conversation like when you landed back at base? Yeah, it's great. It's it's fantastic to look back there and see somebody you definitely know. Uh, well, Chief Godding, it was amazing to watch these missions and amazing to watch people coming back home safely. So I thank you very much. Thank you for your time. Um, and I should let you get back to it. So thank you for joining us. Thank you.
Chief Warrant Officer Kip Godding with the California Army National Guard. This is KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Manconi, joined by my colleague Kathy Novak. Today on the program, we are discussing fire safety as California's fire disasters continue to escalate. Now, Kathy, as we've been hearing throughout the show, I mean, this fire, the Creek Fire, expanded so quickly. It caught so many people by surprise. How did people find cover? I mean, oftentimes I imagine there wasn't much cover to find. Well, in the case of the evacuations that finally happened on Tuesday from several areas around the Sierra National Forest, a lot of the stories that I heard from people where they were out on several day backpacking trips, they saw the smoke or they heard from others that it was really time to evacuate. And there were points around where people were gathering, including a place called the Vermilion Valley Resort near Lake Edison, where they were actually safe. You know, they were in a way station along a hiking trail where they could be inside. They had food. On the other hand, on the Mammoth Pool side, people really were just out on their annual Labor Day camping trips. You know, I heard from people who had been there for the last 15 years, always booked the same spot, were there with family, never had anything like this. And all of a sudden, it was just too late to leave. And in that case, really, people had injuries and it was urgent that they get out. So in that case, it sounded like it was really a good thing that it wasn't the case that we saw with the later evacuations where the choppers had to try several times before they could land. They got there on the early attempts with Mammoth Pool and were able to evacuate people and get those who needed it to hospitals. Yeah. So I suppose that just underscores when it comes to a disaster that escalates that quickly, moves that fast, a lot depends on, honestly, luck of the draw, but also how quickly you're able to respond and get out of Dodge when the getting is good. Uh, Somebody who has his own personal story about uh, the Creek Fire experience and himself managed to get out of Dodge would be uh, Dr. Christopher Dykus. He's a professor of wildland fires and fuels management at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. And uh, he was on hand for some of this fire before he managed to escape. Uh, Dr. Christopher Dykus, welcome to KCBS In Depth. Thank you so much. I uh, wish it was under happier circumstances. Well, don't we all? I mean, that's the theme of 2020. But uh, you had your own little scrape with this fire. Tell us a little bit about uh, your Labor Day weekend and uh, what ended up happening. Well, it's interesting that uh, I was able to successfully evacuate with about 30 minutes before the fire crossed the road uh, down by uh, Lake Huntington. But uh, there was absolutely, we didn't even know that there was a fire for a long time. And uh, the only reason that I saw that there was a fire in the first place is because we had some incredibly rowdy camping neighbors the night before. And we finally said, we can't do this. We're, we got to get out of here. And so as a sort of a last ditch thing, just let's go take a look at a Vista Point. Uh, let's go look at that. And all of a sudden I noticed, huh, there's smoke at the end of uh, where we've got to go. It's just kind of popping up over here. And it was... Um, um, you know, I, I, at the time it wasn't much, but it was like one, uh, one lane road to get down four wheel drive comes in handy. And so my wildfire spidey senses were kind of going off and, uh, I have a breathing impaired wife. And so I was going down the mountain. I was, uh, trying to stop people along the way and saying, you know, Hey, do you know anything about a fire? And nobody knew anything. And I'm just like, Hey, you know, there's smoke over here. And I'm watching this, this thing just grow so 
quickly. And um, it was like, oh my gosh, we've got to get out of Dodge at this point. And so uh, we made it down and uh, we made a stop right by Lake Kennington, you know, and it was amazing. You know, I've been doing this for 30 years and in the absence of really strong winds, like we see with the Diablo winds or Santa Ana's down in San, uh, Southern California, I, I was just astounded how quickly this thing grew. I mean, it became a, a roiling beast very quickly. And in fact, the smoke plume that came out of it, I saw that uh, there's been one account that this particularly might be the largest pyrocumulus cloud ever created, uh, you know, ever in, in U.S. history. So, Dr. Dykus, you were able to get out, but if you had missed that window, what were you going to do? If those folks hadn't disturbed you with their camping? <laughs> well, I would have been stuck up uh, at Lake Edison, which... Uh, I, I had a plan, you know, from the beginning it was like the, my very first plan was is, is like, okay, get some more information and, you know, evacuate if I'm possible, if I can. If I wasn't, I was going to go back, uh, back at Lake Edison, which is, uh, had been drawn down. It was uh, about 20% capacity. And much like we saw at Mammoth Pools, uh, I was going to drive my truck out onto the, um, the lake bed, which was mostly dry, which, well, I know it would have been incredibly uncomfortable, incredibly scary, like some of the videos that we've seen from Mammoth Pools. I knew that I would have been safe, you know, at, uh, at that point. Uh, but knowing that uh, my wife is breathing impaired, the very first thing we need to do was get off the mountain. Because staying up there while we would have been safe from the fire, the smoke, as we all know, it, it, it causes a lot of damage. A lot of public health is going on for areas way outside the fire limits. And so I didn't want to put uh, uh, my bride in that situation. So part of the equation that's going through your head, part of the, the problem that you're trying to solve is not only how do I get out of here, but what are the backup plans? So the, that backup plan is really a key part of fire preparedness. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's, uh, you know, you have to have a plan and always have a backup plan, you know, and in California, so many parts of uh, our state, I mean, the vast majority of it, we're, we're living in fire prone areas and we've got to start thinking about these sorts of things. And so his, uh, my first option was to get out, but uh, you know, I, I had a plan, a backup plan, and then really importantly too, that's something that I've seen over and over and over that a lot of people uh, don't do is, uh, is to act decisively. And uh, you see a lot of times where um, outside, it's like, you know, fires are burning. What do animals do? They're running for their lives. What do humans do? We're taking selfies, you know, that sort of thing. And so I recognize, and again, this is because I've had, you know, 30 years of experience in the wildfire uh, game. It's like, you know, this, this is something that is escalating very, very quickly. And uh, it would be best if we can get out, but if not, we're gonna go do something else. So is the fact then that as we continue through this season, that as people might be planning weekends away, might be planning camping trips like we saw over the Labor Day weekend, that everyone right now needs to really think about what they know about fires and what they're going to do if they end up in an unexpected situation like the people that we saw? Oh, it would be. You know, it, it's a crazy thing where you're thinking about, you know, how am I going to watch the kids? You know, what food am I going to bring? But now going out into the wildlands, you know, it's thinking about, okay, what is going to happen, you know, if a fire breaks out near me? And given the conditions right now where everything is just absolutely bone dry and the fact that uh, the fire service is just absolutely overwhelmed. We just simply do not have enough people uh, or, or uh, resources, equipment to, to go around. So if you go out with this illusion that uh, if a fire breaks out, I'm going to be saved. You know, the superhero, the men and women in the fire service are going to come rescue me. 
that's highly unlikely. And, uh, you know, you've got to take, think about, you know, what is my worst case scenario? And it's a horrible thing to think about because it's been a tough year and you want to go out just to be able to breathe and just to be able to just to get away from all the noise. And then you've got to start in this back of your mind that, you know, I'm putting myself at peril potentially uh, because of the conditions that are out there at present. And you mentioned about how quickly this developed. What was it about this Creek fire that allowed it to uh, spread so quickly and get so out of control? Well, when we talk about fire behavior, it comes down to fuels, weather, topography. And in this case, it kind of all kind of came into alignment in that uh, where we saw, especially going up to the Mammoth Pools area, the topography was aligned in such a way where you had these steep canyons that acted almost what we refer to as a chimney allowing to come up. So the temperature was there, uh, the, um, uh, the terrain was there, but there's something on top of that is that uh, there was a tremendous amount of dead material that uh, was caused by a large beetle epidemic that uh, had happened during our super drought of the last five years. And so there was a lot of dead material there. The forest, frankly, in many, many places uh, are overgrown, you know, and, uh, and so it just took off and uh, just everything came into alignment. And the fortunate thing was, is that we didn't have a strong wind that was blowing up the mountain. Otherwise, it would have been much, much worse if that's, you know, which is hard to believe. It is hard to believe, uh, given how bad things were. And of course, as people are pointing out again and again and again, it is only September and those winds are coming. I think many of the factors that you were talking about right there, those are not just factors that uh, are present in that one location. A lot of those factors are present elsewhere in California, too. It's been a fairly dry year there. We're we're dealing with, as we've discussed on this program before, overgrowth of trees and uh, vegetation in, in many areas of California. So those conditions that made the creek fire expand so quickly, we can expect the same conditions elsewhere and potentially made even worse by winds in the not too far distant future. As scary as it's been, and this has been a historic record where we're all just sitting back going, holy moly, how did it get this bad? I don't want to be the prophet of doom, but it's going to get worse. I mean, I, because just like clockwork, we all know that those Diablo winds, they show up in October and November. And the fires that are there, there has the potential to blow up. And at this point, you know, just, uh, just the smallest spark is going to, you know, potentially start a wildfire that's going to develop very, very quickly. So then, of course, the question is, what can be done about it? Is there anything we can do to prepare for this fire season that's already happening and then further into the future? Well, you know, in the sh- there's, you know, short-term things that we can do to, to immediately, and then there's long-term things we can do. And I would tell your listeners that for the short-term is that if you have any iota, you know, if you're in downtown San Francisco, okay, we, we can deal with that, you know, that'd be a good place to shelter. But most of us don't live in a place, you know, that's just concrete everywhere around. We have uh, flammable vegetation, which we all love and we try to protect and whatnot. So recognizing that there is a strong potential that if something ignites, it's going to get away very quickly is to be prepared in the sense of having, you know, what are you going to do? Think about a plan and a backup plan, you know, to evacuate. You know, we, we talk about having a go bag, you know, if it all hit down and you had five minutes to get out, what do you need, you know, to get on? So that could be, you know, clothing, that could be important documents, uh, identification, credit cards, these things that if it all hit, you know, came down really, really quick. What are you going to take with you? 
And so that's something immediately that everyone should be considering doing is getting this go bag to think about these things. Like if I have to evacuate and you might be gone for two weeks in some of these cases or more, you know, what do you need? You know, if you're thinking about preparing your own property, it's like, well, what can I do? You know, I live in a place uh, that's around, you know, the very, very most important part of any home is the first five feet away from a building. So if you, uh, you know, have lawn furniture right up next to your house, or, you know, you've got mulch or other plants, you know, especially like, you know, try to rake that stuff away from the house. Because, you know, once you're gone, you know, you, there's billions and billions and billions of embers that are going to be landing on the area. And you got to think about, you know, if these embers come and touch the mulch that might be adjoining to your house, um, you know, it's, it's never, never, never a good idea to have flames on an open house. Just think of ways that, uh, uh, that you might be able to provide yourself a little bit of a defense from your own home going off. So that is some of the examples of steps that uh, individual Californians might be able to take, obviously creating defensible space around their homes, very important uh, throughout the year. What about what we could do at the state level? There is some talk of perhaps uh, holding a a special session of uh, the California legislature to uh, boost funding for fire prevention and fire preparedness. Uh, I've, I've been asking fire experts this for a couple of weeks now, but I think getting as many ideas in the mix as possible is important. What would you like to see California's fire plan? What shape would you like to see that take uh, if uh, if more funding is made available? Well, you know, this is we say that we're all in this together and everyone has their own sort of uh, tunnel vision approach. It's like, Oh, we need to do fuels management. Oh, we need to do, you know, more fire suppression, but we all need, uh, you know, uh, it has to be a holistic uh, look at things because there's so many moving parts during these wildfires. And I, I have been encouraged over the last five years in response to the devastating fires that we've seen leading up to this year is that uh, both the governor and the legislature have started taking this seriously and starting looking at ways that uh, to better be able to protect uh, Californians. And so some of the things that I'm seeing is perhaps a, a little bit of loosening around some of the regulations around vegetation management, which, you know, if it, it, it burns, you know, it, it sometimes it's difficult giving uh, our environmental regulations, which are incredibly, this is something we want. We as Californians value this, but sometimes we can love the forest so much, you know, we love it to death. And we set up our situations that we're trying to protect the trees. And then, you know, we, we kill the forest by having that happen. And uh, I know also there's a, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier previously, like the zero to five feet, you know, there are current regulations uh, in place in California where um, it requires what we refer to as defensible space, you know, managing the landscaping or around your house and whatnot. But something that uh, we've seen over and over and over again is that first five feet is so important. And one of the things that uh, myself and others are advocating for is a special regulations like, you know, the distance right beside the house, it needs to be absolutely clear because that is probably the most important thing that you can do in terms of like saving your own house. And, you know, there's different scales that you can look at. Um, a lot of my colleagues are like, you know, big proponents like I am of uh, prescribed fires and uh, mechanical treatments out in the forest. But for an individual house, you've got to start from the house and then move out. Um, because these, you know, you can do treatments out on the wildlands, but these embers are traveling miles and miles advance. And, you know, these things are landing in your front yards. And so trying at the individual level, protect that individual house and starting at the house and then moving out. 
Yeah, there is a responsibility there. It's interesting. As I was driving around um, some of the areas that had been evacuated from the Creek Fire, I saw at the end of someone's driveway, someone had spray painted on a cardboard box, house prepared for firefighters to defend, sort of like a big sign saying, please come here, you can save our house. And, you know, it is showing that individual preparedness. And Dr. Dykes, you know, in terms of lessons learned and the fact that we're still in the middle of this, are there big takeaways or, or a place... Uh, elsewhere in the country or overseas that is doing things better than we are and that we really need to think about changing? Well, I think that California by far more than any other state in the country, because we've had this bully punch us in the nose over and over, you know, we're better prepared than any other state in the country. And yet we still see these, uh, um, you know, horrific wildfires are coming through. And so, you know, as far as, um, things to, to, to think about, you know, like, uh, you know, preparing your homes and, uh, you know, trying to different scales and it's holistic. It, it's not just one thing. And it, it, it drives me insane where I see people point. It's like, Oh, this is the problem. Or, Oh, this is the problem. You know, it's so many moving parts and it's, it's going to take a lot of folks, whether that be uh, foresters, firefighters, engineers, all these folks have to be in the same room because we kind of come in with our own sort of mindset. And if we don't get in the same room together and talk and come up with solutions, it, you know, we're, it, we're doomed to repeat this over and over and over. And it, to me, it's tragic because I, I see certain places, you know, if they had burned, like, you know, the, one of the fires is looking at back at coming back into paradise. You know, we saw uh, last year where, you know, you had the Tubbs fire came through. It's like, oh, good. We, we dodged a bullet, you know, in our, and then all of a sudden, you know, the Kincaid fire comes right back into the same area. So these lands are set up to burn. And ecologically, they need the right type of fire that's out there. So it shouldn't be surprising, you know, when we uh, see fires come through there because we're living in a fire prone environment. You know, many of these ecosystems, they need fire just to be able to be sustainable on the landscape. Yeah, well, unfortunately, no simple solutions is the answer we hear again and again and again, but it's uh, just another call to get back to the drawing board and keep on trying. We have been speaking to Dr. Christopher Dykus. He is a professor of wildland fire and fuels management at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. Had his own run-in recently with the Creek Fire, told us all about it right here. Dr. Christopher Dykus, thank you for sharing your experience and your expertise with us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Also joined today by my colleague Kathy Novak, a reporter for KCBS who was nearby the Creek Fire and did some excellent reporting over this past week. Kathy Novak, thanks for joining us and thank you for your reporting too. Oh, thanks for having me, Keith. Thank you all for listening. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Menconi. Stay safe, be well. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS.